Africa rise and shine Africa zola Africa amka na unai Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective and we're coming to you live in Johannesburg, South Africa. We are on the frequencies 7230 kHz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19 meter band to West Africa as well as DSTV's audio bouquet Channel 802. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Tabisa Lohoko and Figile Lingwati. In our top stories in Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, Kenya's Uhuru Kenyatta wins repeat presidential election, Liberia's ruling party contest presidential election results, and concerns over young Eritrean refugees fleeing the country. In economics news, Barclays and Standard Bank to stop working with McKinsey. And in sports news, Nigeria names strong squad for friendlies against Algeria and Argentina. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. Good morning to you. I'm Anne Musa. The United Nations says it will continue to closely monitor developments in Kenya after President Uhuru Kenyatta was declared the winner of last week's controversial rerun of the presidential election. UN Secretary General Spokesperson Stefan Dujaric. It's not for the UN to uh, recognize or not recognize uh, the government. We're not in the business of of doing that, uh, especially with elections that we did not uh, we did not organize. Obviously, we're all following the situation uh, extremely closely. We remain in contact with African Union uh, colleagues as well. I think what's important is that now there is a that there is an open dialogue between the political actors uh, in Kenya, and we would not want to see any uh, rise in tension or any violence on the streets. Somali authorities have imposed a daytime ban on the movement of large trucks and road tankers inside the capital, Mogadishu, thus in an attempt to improve security following a wave of devastating attacks by militants. The move followed twin truck bombings earlier this month that killed more than 350 people in the city in the deadliest attack in the history of the Horn of African nation. Further underlining the Somali capital security concerns, at least 29 people were killed on Sunday during a 12-hour siege at a Mogadishu hotel in an attack claimed by Al-Shabaab. The government subsequently sacked two top security officials. A court in Cameroon has sentenced opposition lead Abu Bakr Siddiqui to 25 years in prison. His lawyer and Amnesty International say his trial in a military court was politically motivated, but the government denies this. Siddiqui is the president of the northern Cameroon's main opposition party. Ntakwanangatane reports. People in Cameroon's English-speaking territories have been protesting what they call marginalization in the predominantly francophone country in recent months. In a statement, Amnesty International said Siddiqui's prosecution was part of a government campaign to stifle its critics, but the government denies the charges are political. The White House has distanced itself from arrests made in relation to possible collusion between the Trump campaign and Russia over the 2016 presidential elections. President Donald Trump has tweeted that there was no collusion after his former campaign manager, 
Paul Manafort pleaded not guilty to charges of concealing earnings from his dealings with Ukraine in the year before he joined the Trump team. Senator Minority Leader Chuck Schumer. Trump's campaign manager Paul Manafort faces a number of very serious charges. It's alleged that he was paid to work as an agent for a pro-Russian party in Ukraine and the indictment details a complex... The stakes could not be higher. We're talking about the pride and wellspring of our grand democracy, free and fair elections, which have been going on for more than two centuries and were disturbed and adulterated by a hostile foreign power with no good intent for the people of this country. It's critical that we need to get to the bottom of this. And finally, a new report on climate change has concluded that rising temperatures are seriously harming human health. The report from a group of universities and United Nations agencies says more people are being affected by heat waves, a poor diet and spread of diseases. The world's nations have pledged to limit average global warming caused by the emissions of fossil fuel gases to 2 degrees Celsius from pre-industrial revolution levels. U.S. President Donald Trump has pulled his country out of the pact, though the withdrawal can only become effective in about four years. The BBC's Jessica McAllen reports. The report says that with crops failing due to rising temperatures, undernutrition has become the largest health impact of climate change this century. The study, published in The Lancet, also explained that hotter weather will affect food production. For instance, in countries like India and Brazil, farm productivity is falling because it is often too hot for labourers to work. The research also highlights an increase in the transmission of mosquito-borne diseases such as dengue fever, with warmer temperatures giving the insects a greater range. And that's the New Zealand's at 8.30 Central African time. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Celebrating 100 years of O.R. Tambo. Oliver Tambo spent three decades in exile. His family made London its home. So it is perhaps fitting that his statue be located in the borough of Haringey, where he lived with his wife and children. Oliver used this house as his base as he travelled the world, boosting the profile of the ANC, setting up missions in more than two dozen countries. His wife Adelaide ran the family home and worked as a hospital nurse locally. Hashtag Oartambo 100. When he was in London, Oliver was a major figure at the anti-apartheid rallies in Trafalgar Square outside South Africa House. The link to London, and more particularly to the borough of Haringey, is one that was valued by both the Tambos. In 1990, before they left to return to South Africa, Oliver and Adelaide were awarded the freedom of the borough. They were the first recipients of this prestigious honour. Celebrating 100 years of O.R. Tambo. It's still unclear whether Kenya's president-elect Uhuru Kenyatta's win will translate into stability returning to the East African country. Yesterday, he was officially declared the winner in the October 26 repeat elections with 98% of the vote. But his victory is clouded by poor voter turnout, with a record low of 38% of registered voters casting their ballots. Court challenges of the result are also imminent. Opposition leader Raila Odinga led a boycott against the fresh poll that seemed to split the country in half. Even in Kenyatta's victory speech, he refrained from outlining how he would begin unifying the nation. Numabolani reports. I hereby declare Mr. Horumugai Kenyatta and Mr. William Samway Ruto as President-elect and Deputy President-elect, respectively. Electoral Commission Chairperson Wafula Chibukati making the official announcement. Welcome by full hall at the National Telling Centre in Nairobi. Supporters of the ruling Jubilee Party and its leader Uhuru Kenyatta ecstatic by the obvious win. Once again, 
as you all know i have been here before <laughs> hopefully this is for the last time <laughs> i as a kenyan celebrate our resilience as a nation but i also celebrate our resilience and the resilience of our democracy the resilience of our people any other country experiencing the turns and twists of our recent electoral process would have burst burst asunder Kenyatta the president elect cautiously optimistic that his nation will bounce back from the turmoil that has gripped the country since the first election run he thanked his supporters for validating the august 8 results which saw him win with 54% of the vote but on the other side of town News of the declaration triggered fresh violent disruptions in Nairobi's informal settlement of Kawangware. The protests and opposition strongholds may be the reason Kenyatta's speech addressed the expectant court challenges on the legitimacy of these results. Many of those supporting the opposition have indicated that they would not recognize Kenyatta as a rightful winner. A petition has already been submitted to the Supreme Court by a human rights activist to nullify the repeat elections. So therefore those who will want to ask me are you going to engage in dialogue with so and so and so and so let them first and foremost exhaust their constitutionally laid out processes let them go to court let them do whatever they want nobody shall deny them of their constitutional right those issues we shall discuss later as to my agenda going forward i will discuss once the processes are over i am not going to jump the gun there's a 10 day period that allows for challenges and complaints to be lodged against electoral commission but chairperson chebukati said they were satisfied that the elections were free fair and credible commission ensured that everything required of us by law was put in place for the conduct of the election we trained our staff we identified and gazetted polling stations we appointed election officials and trained them and in order to make certain that everything was in place we even changed the initial date we had set for election 17th october to 26 just to ensure that we have ample time to oversee flawless and credible process meanwhile opposition leader raila odinga is expected to make an announcement on tuesday about the way forward for his resistance campaign the international observers are also set to hold a press briefing to give their views on the repeat elections i'm noma bolani in nairobi kenya The turnout in the Kenyan election was just under 39%, less than half that recorded in the nullified vote in August. The opposition leader Raila Odinga had pulled out of the poll and called on his supporters to boycott the vote. In the west of the country, many opposition supporters prevented those backing the government from taking part. There have been clashes in some districts. The BBC's Africa editor Fergal Kian has been to an area of conflict between two tribes the luo and the kalenjin we're driving through the sugar plantations outside muharoni it's an immensity of green beautiful landscape but there was a murder here a man an elderly man who died because he was not fast enough to escape an attacking mob this is koguta village and the people here are from the luo tribe They blame their Kalenjin neighbors living just across the fields for the killing. We've just arrived at the scene of the killing now in the middle of the sugar fields. And we're walking over there's a large group of young men all of them armed with traditional weapons. A couple of policemen with automatic rifles just go and investigate what's going on. As the crowd parts, we can see here lying directly in front of us the body of a man he's been beaten and stabbed lying between two fronds large fronds of sugarcane the man lying in front of me was george ojwang odumbe 63 years old with five children and six grandchildren and the sole breadwinner of his family 
the widow of the man who was killed is Mary Otieno and she's now just uh, emerged from the crowd that's been standing around the body. And do you know the exact facts of what happened to your husband? We went to the sugarcane plantation to work and all of a sudden our neighbours came and attacked us. They set the sugarcane on fire. We ran away, but they cut my husband with a machete and he fell. The local councillors have now gathered around the body and it will be interesting to see how they calm, if they calm tensions. If they are not going to apprehend the people who have killed our brother here, then we shall ask our people to take the law into their hands. At the root of the dispute with the Kalenjin is competition over resources, land, cattle, a struggle exacerbated now by the political crisis. The Luo support the opposition, the Kalenjin the government. Here the expectation is that the man who gets power will take care of his own tribe. This has helped to keep Kenyan politics deeply ethnicised. The Kalenjin have men in government now and fear what would happen if the opposition took power. We've just come around a, a corner up the brow of a hill and an extraordinary sight. There are several hundred heavily armed Kalenjin warriors right in front of us. and We've walked down into the middle of the group. Uh, it's tense atmosphere. All young men carrying bows and arrows, poison-tipped arrows, and they're clearly preparing for something. Why are you so angry? Why are all the men around us carrying weapons? The conflict started during the elections. We wanted to vote, but the Luo community didn't, so they blocked the roads. Local governors from the opposing tribes have met and together tried to calm tensions, an example Kenya's national politicians have yet to emulate. I'm back on the main road now, which is effectively the no-man's land between the Luo and Kalenjin communities. And what we've seen on both sides are all of the problems that have bedeviled this country since independence. And that is poverty, compounded by corruption and official misrule. And powerful men, politicians, using ethnic rivalry as a means of consolidating their own position. It's gotten much worse during this election. That was the BBC's Fergal Kian reporting from Kenya. Liberia's ruling party has announced a formal complaint against the country's electoral commission over the outcome of the October 10th presidential vote. The Unity Party is alleging widespread and systematic fraud as well as incompetence that it says prevented legitimate voters from casting ballots. The extraordinary charge by the ruling party against Johnson Sirleaf, one of its own members, throws into question a second round runoff schedule for November the 7th between its candidate Joseph Bokai and frontrunner George Weir. Ibrahim Ney is a Liberian researcher and has more from the capital, Monrovia. I'm only surprised that the ruling party has come out so little to raise these claims. But uh, it's been clear uh, over the last few months that there have been a lot of uh, electoral malpractices, the complications in handling the relationship between President Salim and her own ruling party. And uh, rumors abound that the president was supporting the opposition coalition for democratic change. And uh, she demonstrated that by not displaying or showing any support for the ruling party. And so I'm only surprised that the party came out so little. But Mm -hmm. we know that these things have been happening. And uh, the election also, there are reports from the civil society that the election was marred by a series of irregularities. And uh, you could see that the pool workers were not trained. They were incompetent. I witnessed this at my own polling station. I spent four hours in the queue, and I saw the level of incompetence in the pool workers. And so reports have come out over uh, over, uh, year and year from across the country. The election commission has organized about four reruns in four districts. This is highly unprecedented. We've just uncovered some ballot papers that were thrown away in an unfinished building, and most of the ballot papers uh, that were found were marked ballot papers. So these, uh, all of these bring to the fore the level, the extent of the irregularity in the election. So by the ruling party 
calling for uh, a, a for joining the opposition and going to court. Well, it looks I mean it looks paradoxical, but does it, it, it happen? Interestingly, that's what's happening. This is almost a ruling party now in opposition. The ruling party is accusing President Ellen Johnson Sirleaf of interfering in the vote. Does this point to the souring of relations between uh, Ellen Johnson Sirleaf um, and Joseph Boakai? Yes, this definitely confirms. It definitely confirms the rumor that the president hasn't been supportive of party and that the president and the ruling party has ha- have had a sour relationship over the last few months or in fact over the last one year since the electoral season uh, began. So this is only a confirmation of what has been happening between the president and her party. And also by the president organizing a, a private meeting at her home with election magistrates and members of the election commission uh, I mean, it's very, it's very concerning. Now, what does this mean, Mr. May? Does this change anything in terms of the upcoming runoff election? Yes, of course. The, the, the legal process, the, the court case filed by the opposition Liberty Party is going to get steamed, is going to be energized, and the Supreme Court will have to take this very seriously and uh, have a hearing uh, no later than uh, November 6th. So we look forward to see what the Supreme Court will come out with. This will give, like I said, further validation to the claim of the opposition. But in the final uh, analysis, the decision is left with the Supreme Court judges. Has uh, President Ellen Johnson Sirleaf said anything with regards to the accusations that are being made against her? Well, she has not responded yet, but we expect an official response today. But her supporters uh, in the government, uh, in the cabinet, some of whom are supporting the opposition, have already come out uh, swinging back at the unity party. That was Ibrahim Ney, a Liberian researcher and activist on the line from Monrovia in Liberia, speaking to Channel Africa's Kumbelo Mujelele. The African National Congress stalwart and order of OR Tambo recipient Michael Dingake, who stays in Khaboroni in Botswana, says there are lessons from the ANC of today to learn from OR Tambo's generation. One of these would be how to deal with the leadership contest as the party prepares for its December elective conference. Dingake was one of those who were instrumental in the fight against apartheid in South Africa and in Botswana. Khajani reports. South Africa's struggle against apartheid was fought by many within and beyond these borders. Michael Dingake from Bubunum village in Botswana spent 15 years on Robben Island for his participation in the ANC, which was at the forefront of the liberation struggle. Although he is a citizen of Botswana, his contribution to the struggle in South Africa has earned him the respect of many in the ANC, as ANC NEC member Bilima Setla explains. Member of the African National Congress in his own right, a revolutionary, a Communist Party member, who in 1960, when the ANC was banned, was one of the few chosen to be part of the National Secretariat of the African National Congress and became the nucleus of the organization that made it possible to survive and one of the organizers of that conference in 1962. Dingake spent time in prison on the Robben Island with former President Nelson Mandela and President Jacob Zuma. He is lamenting tendencies now prevalent in the ANC of today. I am thinking back to the last official conference of the ANC that we had, you know, in Durban in 1958. At this conference where Uwar Tambo, you know, was... Uh, elected um, the deputy president. I remember there was quite a bit of uh, lobbying. We didn't uh, go to newspapers and so on, but the branches, you know, were quite active, you see, in lobbying. Dingaike believes the ANC is going to the December elective conference polarized. What worries me nowadays, you know, about the ANC, it appears anybody can become, you know, a spokesperson is the ANC. When official statements, you know, have to, made, you have to be made, you hear quite a number of voices, one saying something somewhere. If we could, you know, bring back, you see, that uh, discipline, organizational discipline, that would be good instead of everybody deciding that, you know, he or she was, you know, the, the chief spokesperson is the ANC. Dingake, like his comrades, ZK Matthews and Fish Keating form an integral part of the history of their adopted home, South Africa, although they were born in Botswana. 
the ANC will hold its national elective conference in December and several senior leaders, including Cyril Ramaphosa and Nkosazana Tamini Zuma, are campaigning for the top position in the continent's oldest liberation movement. I meet Umelen Khajani in Khaburoni, Botswana. Attention to our listeners. From the 30th of October 2017, the first hour of Africa Digest will not be broadcast on Channel 802 on the DSTV Audio Bouquet. The 1700-hours show will only be found on shortwave and online on www.channelafrica.co.za. Please note that this only applies to the 1700-hours Central African Time show. The 1900-hour Central African Time program will be back on all the platforms. Channel Africa, giving you an African perspective. Eritrea's future is literally walking away in the form of young refugees fleeing the country. That's the view of Sheila Kitaruth, Special Rapporteur on the Situation of Human Rights in Eritrea. She said that thousands of young people often walk for days in a desperate bid to reach the border and avoid years-long forced conscription into the army. The UN expert appointed by the Human Rights Council urged the international community not to turn its back on the refugees for what she termed short-term political gain. She described institutional reform, which would ensure rule of law as the country's highest priority. Ketaroth spoke to Agnes Pastorino about her report. The main challenge of my mandate when I started in 2012 was that I didn't have access to the country. So I was like, what should I be doing to collect information which is uh, fresh and uh, which has been verified But over time, I have found that while this was uh, a challenge, it has allowed me to also broaden my network of people to whom I speak about human rights issues in Eritrea. And over time also, it hasn't been of any handicap in terms of how I continued gathering information from various sources, collecting the information and having it checked, etc. So what I found as the biggest challenge, in fact, over time become great opportunity in terms of how to continue work in such situations. Do you think that um, your position in Eritrea has changed due to political aspects or just because of your attitude? The situation in Eritrea is quite difficult in terms of political space. Since 1991, those who brought liberation to the country are still in power. Independence was in 1993. And since then, the only political party which has been allowed is uh, the PFDJ, and it's still there. So on the political front, I don't see much Uh, in terms of changes. However, I look at it from a human rights perspective because the right to participate in government, in public life, is in fact a human right and people should have the opportunity to have their say in all that concerns public life and uh, the political space in the country. What is your um, way to access to people voices? I have talked uh, to several types of voices, if I may put it this way. At the beginning, I have uh, listened to lots of people who were leaving the country in neighboring countries, but then I went further afield and talked to many of those. I also then developed a network of uh, people who have been working on Eritrea for a longer time than since I started in 2012. And uh, for me, the voices which I have sort of found more powerful, I, I started talking to young children 
leaving uh, the country. And I wanted to understand why do they leave? What is the problem? So I followed them from a refugee camp, not the same group, of course, but youngsters who go from one country to another uh, in search of a safe haven. So I was in on the continent, went on to Tunisia to meet quite a number of them, continued uh, in other European countries. And those were the most powerful voices I have heard because, as you know, children are the future of a country and in fact so many young people are leaving and it's like the future of the country walking away what are the expectations of these young people most of the people I've spoken to, the youngsters, uh, said that uh, they feel very uh, sort of constrained in a situation at home which uh, links education to the national service, conscription, forced conscription. What happens is that at the age of 18 or when uh, young people reach 12th grade um, in the curricula of uh, the educational path, they need to go to military training at the same time in order to pursue their education because if they don't do that, they won't be able to get a certificate uh, at the end. People felt being pulled down, those youngsters. They wanted education, but they didn't want military training because they don't want to be conscripted for an indefinite period in the national service. And that's irrespective of uh, whether it's a boy or a girl. Also girls are involved into military forces? Yes, girls are also conscripted and undergo the same training as boys. Of course, there are different ways, uh, you know, some, some girls have sort of become invisible in their community because uh, lots, lots have dropped out. Uh, I have spoken to a few who decided they would rather get married uh, and have a family because uh, they can sort of get away from the national service. Basically, what is um, the situation is that people get different modes to cope, not to be enrolled in the national service. Is there something further you want to say to our audience? I really believe that uh, at the moment what is needed in Eritrea is for people to understand that there's some basic things which uh, absolutely need to happen. At the moment, there's no constitution in Eritrea. There's no independent judiciary. There is no uh, sort of checks and balances, uh, legislative assembly. Basically, I'm talking about a lack of rule of law. So what the country needs, and I'm talking not only for people but also for the government, is to ensure that there's institutional reforms which ensure that uh, rule of law is uh, the highest priority because it has an incidence on each and every aspect of people's life. That was Sheila Kita. Ruth, UN Special Rapporteur on the situation of human rights in Eritrea, speaking there to UN Radio's Agnes Pastorino. Our headlines up next with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musan. The headlines, Kenyan opposition leader Raila Odinga expected to give his response to Uhuru Kenyatta's victory in the country's presidential election. A Cameroonian court sentences opposition leader Bubaka Siddiqui to 25 years in prison for hostility against the homeland as well as revolution and contempt of the president. And the White House has distanced itself from arrests made in relation to possible collusion between the Trump campaign and Russia over the 2016 presidential elections. Those are the stories making headlines.
The U.S. has lifted a range of economic sanctions it imposed on Sudan two decades ago. Washington says the Sudanese government has made progress in issues relating to counterterrorism and human rights. The decision comes at a time when Sudan is suffering increasing debt and inflation, as well as seeing poor delivery in the fields of education and health. So will the lifting of the sanctions help to revive the country? The BBC's Tommy Oladepo sent this report from the capital, Khartoum. There's a strong smell of oil around this compound and it looks more like a vehicle repair yard. The main building is dark and abandoned. There's nothing really left here. But there are clear signs that this place many years ago would have been teeming with activity with staff here as they worked on sesame seeds and and other types of seeds to produce oil. It's one of the many factories across Sudan that have suffered since the U.S. sanctions were put in place. We used to have four factories. Motalib Dirar was a partner in a thriving company importing and exporting everything from textiles to edible oil. Then the trade embargoes hit. After the sanctions, there was no way to get the spare parts, no way to export even if you can start manufacturing the goods. Everything went down complete or total collapse. And it's not just business that's been affected. About a half hour's drive from the center of the capital, Khartoum, Hawa Mohammed Adam is playing the keyboard, trying to recall a song by her band. She's well known as a musician, but more recently she's been a music instructor at the University of Sudan. But she hasn't been to work since last year when she was diagnosed with cancer. The devices here are substandard. In Cairo, I discovered that I did not only have one tumor, but several tumors. We, the Sudanese people, are sad, very sad indeed. Despite the fact that we have very competent doctors, we do not have devices, equipment and tools. We do not have anything. Hawa's family, friends and even fans helped raise the money for her treatment in Egypt. Now she hopes the lifting of the sanctions will mean she doesn't have to make the expensive trips to access the modern medical care she needs. It's a stark picture of how Sudan's isolation has been felt on the ground. But this country appears to have turned a corner, meeting some of the demands required for the lifting of the sanctions. And the U.S. is giving the Sudanese government the benefit of the doubt. Stephen Kutsis is the chargé d'affaires in Khartoum. We want Sudan to be a partner and an ally uh, and not an adversary uh, or or a negative force. And uh, our engagement has has led that direction. Uh, We're very pleased that Sudan is working cooperatively uh, with its neighbors in many ways. Sudan's Minister of Investment, Mubarak al-Madi, is optimistic about the role his country could play partnering with the West. He says elements within his government see the worth in this. They uh, seized the chance of the geopolitical changes in the area, the worries of the West from the illegal immigration, the worries from the, of the West from uh, terrorism. So the West and the Americans could see that Sudan could be a very uh, good stabilizing force. There are dozens of students sitting on benches and pavements around this quiet campus of the University of Khartoum. And looking around at these students, most of them look to be in their late teens or early 20s and have definitely spent most, if not all, of their lives living in a Sudan that has been under U.S. sanctions. And now that the sanctions are being lifted, I'm interested in what their thoughts are on the future for them and for their country. I am Sobek. I study here in the University of Khartoum, Faculty of Art, uh, German Department, German and English. The problem is not sanction. The problem is our government, corruption, terrorism, they are... Supporting, supporting terrorism. I'm Nazar and I'm studying here in the University of Khartoum, Faculty of Arts, uh, Chinese Department. Okay, those people, those people, the government people, they will use these benefits which come from the USA in order to, to improve themselves. And not the normal people's lives? No, of course no. The University of Khartoum is one of the main sources of dissent in Sudan and it wasn't long before a protest began nearby during our interview.
Our government-appointed minder quickly forced the BBC team to leave the campus. It was a glimpse at the limited freedom Sudanese people have. The government here will have to prove it's committed to long-term reform if Sudan is to fully emerge from the shadows. That was the BBC's Tommy Oladepo reporting from Khartoum. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Four leading manufacturers of milk formula are unduly boosting profits by exploiting parents' understandable desire to give the best possible nutrition to their babies. This was revealed in a new investigation report by the Netherlands-based Changing Markets Foundation and Partners. The report reviewed more than 400 infant milks for babies under 12 months from the top global manufacturers. Noosa Urban Sick from Changing Markets Foundation explains. We looked at the four biggest infant formula manufacturers, which are Nestle, Danone, Meat Johnson and Abbott, and we looked at how they're selling their products at 14 different markets around the world, which includes Asia, like China, Hong Kong, Indonesia, South Africa, in Africa, Europe, and United States. So these companies often claim that they're science-based, that behind their products is like decades of nutritional research and science. But actually, when you look at their products, there is no same product at the market anywhere. So basically... Each product in all the different countries have some variations, which puts their claims that they are science-based under question. Give us an idea of how much so do the prices differ across countries and what exactly determines this differentiation of product prices? So basically, we found out that they are charging much different sums, so within the country, but also in between countries. So Mm. for example, in South Africa, the cheapest product on the market, it would cost you $37 per month to Mm -hmm. feed like two to three months old baby. With the most expensive product, it would be $60 a month. In the countries where they charge most, for example, Hong Kong, it's $116 a month with the cheapest product and $304 a month with the most expensive product. So you can see it's almost like three times as much or for the most expensive one, like five times as much as it would cost you in South Africa. And we think that they decide based on consumer concerns because China and Hong Kong, they basically have the most expensive formula and they have this kind of several factors that influence that. So, for example, Chinese couples only have one baby uh, still now and they want to give them the best possible nutrition. But breastfeeding also is not very common in China. The rates of breastfeeding are very low. They're around 30%. And on top of that, they had this scandal in 2008, melanin scandal, where where over 300,000 babies got sick and six babies died. So they're very suspicious of domestic products and they prefer to pay much higher prices for foreign products and even higher prices for foreign premium products. So we found out that pretty much, you know, companies do their market research. They establish what parents want most in different countries. For example, Asian countries, it's high height. So basically they kind of tailored products in a way that, you know, mothers think that buying this specific product would make their baby higher or chubbier or things like that. And how do these companies get away with this practice? Well, what we also found is that there are not actually that many controls. So what you have in place is this marketing code that, you know, in theory prohibits marketing of any kind of breast milk substitutes up to three years of age. And actually, South Africa is one of the countries that implemented this marketing code quite well. But even when you have this marketing code, you know, very often companies breach it. So they kind of say on paper we comply with it, but then in practice they don't. And in a way, this kind of nutritional science and having so many products at different prices on the market is also deemed by many NGOs to be a way around the marketing code. 
And to answer your question, they can't do it because there are not that many controls, you know, in many countries around the world. When governments do decide to look into it, they normally say, yeah, you know, this is a problem. For example, in Singapore, the government looked at the prices of different formulas on the market and they said, you're charging really high prices, but then mm. basically they told consumers you shouldn't be buying expensive products, you know. Now, let's reflect on how is this problematic for the health of babies who solely depend on formula, especially in their early days of life. Yeah, I guess the problem is twofold. So the first one is like a lot of organizations say that we should be very kind of precautious in terms of what we put in the formulas and having this extra nutrient that companies use to charge premiums could actually be more harmful for babies' metabolism. And kind of, you know, when regulators approve this uh, extra nutrients, they more look at the fact that it's not harmful. But to be honest, we don't know because there are no long-term studies. And the second problem is that we found out during our research as well that very often families struggle, you know, to, to kind of pay for the formula. So, you know, first of all, very often these companies convince them that formula is better than breastfeeding. Once they start using formula and then after a while your breast milk kind of runs out, after Mm. that formula companies convince mothers that if you pay more, you know, you get really better nutrition for your baby. So very often mothers struggle in countries in Asia. They sometimes use half or even more of that monthly income to pay for this formula. Finally, Nusa, so what's the purpose of this report, which is now um, sort of naming and shaming these companies that are driving profits? Any recommendations put forward in terms of how to better address this? Yes, we think that, you know, governments should start controlling this market more. They should be checking nutritional quality of products. They should prevent companies from putting unjustified science and health claims on the packaging. And then maybe they should also try to regulate prices a little bit more and, you know, the number of products on the market. That was Nusa Urbansik from Changing Markets Foundation, and she was on the line from London speaking to Jane Rabutata. It's 8.46, and our economics update up next with Tabiso Luhuku. Good morning. Barclays Africa and Standard Bank say they will stop working with international consulting firm McKinsey, a further blow to the global consultancy as it faces allegations of bribery for work done with the friends of South African President Jacob Zuma. Privately held McKinsey, the world's largest management consultancy, has denied doing anything illegal but said it was embarrassed by mistakes it made while working with the South African state power utility Eskom last year. McKinsey said it regretted working on a 113 million US dollar contract at ESCOM alongside a company controlled by the controversial Gupta family, wealthy friends of President Zuma, who are accused of unduly influencing government contracts. Chad is on a collision course with the top creditor, Glencore as it wants to divert oil from the Swiss trading house to U.S. energy company ExxonMobil from the new year amid a dispute over debt restructuring. A government document shows that Chad wants to hand over crude oil marketing rights currently held by Atlancor under a $1.4 billion U.S. dollar loan agreement to Exxon, the biggest oil producer in the Central African country. Workers at the SABC will go on strike on Thursday after trade union CWU and Bemau issued a notice of intention to strike. Bemau says more than 80% of its members at the SABC are in favor of the strike. The union says even non-unionized SABC workers would be entitled to take part in the strike. They are demanding a 10% salary increase. Bemau's Hannes Dubuisson says that they hope SABC management and the board will engage the union to try and avert industrial action at the SABC. The public broadcaster's spokesperson, Keiza Hanyahu. This is a serious concern for us because the board only started working last week. Their first meeting was on the 23rd 
of October. And in that first meeting, one of the priorities that they came up with is to stabilize the organization financially. They then had a delegation from the board and management to go and meet with the unions. That meeting resulted in the delegation saying to the unions, we are now going to have a full board and only after that will we give you a feedback by the 1st of November. It was a surprise when all of a sudden, before we could even go back and give a feedback, we already then get a notice for a strike. Indo-Zambia Bank has been awarded the AAA rating as one of the most financially stable institutions in the banking sector in the country. The move by the Credit Rating Agency Limited, which is the only legal credit rating agency in Zambia, followed the decision by the bank's board of directors on August the 22nd to undergo credit rating. IBZ's decision becomes this, rather IBZ becomes the third bank to be rated by credit rating agency since its inspection in 2000 inception rather in 2015 with Cavemont and Zanaco having been the first two the US dollar trades at 14.7 in South Africa. It's at 10.46 in Botswana and at 9.99 in Zambia. 75 pence to the British pound, 86 cents to the euro. Gold $1,273, platinum $918 an ounce. The price of brand crude oil is at $60.50 a barrel. I'm Tabi Solohoko for Channel Africa. Our sports update up next with Phil Elingwati. First up in our sports update this hour, we begin with rugby news. South African rugby will be waiting anxiously today for the announcement of World Rugby's preferred candidate to host the World Cup in 2023, which is a crucial step towards winning the bid. The official announcement of whether France, Ireland or South Africa will host Rugby World Cup 2023 will only be made on the 15th of November, when the World Cup Rugby Council members vote to decide the host country. But it would be highly irregular if the votes went contrary to the recommendation of the RWC 2023 bid evaluation report, which will be announced today. And the Springbok coach Alistair Coutier has confirmed that loose forward Jean-Luc Dupré has fractured his ankle and will not be touring with the squad on the outgoing tour to Europe. Dupré fractured his ankle in Saturday's Curry Cup final while playing for the Sharks. Yeah, Jean-Luc, unfortunately, I have fractured his, his ankle, broken ankle. And uh, actually very sad for, for, for the player to miss out on, uh, you know, on, on an outgoing tour like this. Um, and he's really done well up until now, settled in nicely, uh, been a part of this, uh, you know, this, this pack of forwards that we're building. And uh, yeah, but uh, obviously, the replacement will be decided on um, soonest. I think uh, we've got to go through a process now and make sure uh, that by tomorrow the replacement player will be announced. Kutsie says Huka Bongimbo Nambi suffered a dead leg in Saturday's Curry Cup final but should be fit and ready to depart with the team on Friday while Captain Eben Erdsberth is no longer wearing the moon boot on his ankle and will participate in training on Thursday. Uh, from the report from the doctor, nothing really. It's except Bongi that has just got a bit of a uh, a lame lame leg from the uh, final Saturday, but no 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 issues really. No, look, Yeben Andre is 100% uh, over all the testing and he's trained really well at uh, Stellenbosch. And then obviously Eben is out of the moon boot already. 
So we expecting Eben to, it has just been precautionary to put him in the moon boot to destabilize, just to stabilize the, uh, the ankle, obviously, take all the, the weight off it. Uh, but uh, we're looking forward for Eben to be part of team training by Thursday, as early as Thursday. In football news, Nigeria national football team captain Mikel John Obi, forward Ahmed Musa, and midfielder Ogenye Onazi topped the list of 24 players that Super Eagles technical advisor Gennad Raw has invited for next week's 2018 FIFA World Cup qualifying match away to Algeria and the prestige friendly with Argentina and Russia four days later. All invited players are expected to arrive in a camp in Morocco on the 6th of November before the delegation flies to Constantine on the 9th of November. On the 11th of November, a 45-seater chartered aircraft will fly the Super Eagles from Constantine to Krasnoda, the Russian city that will host the international friendly against Argentina on the 14th of November. And in tennis news, world number one Rafael Nadal just needs to win one more match to be assured of the ATP number one status through to the end of the year. In Paris for the Paris Masters Tournament and in the absence of world number two Roger Federer, a relaxed Nadal gave a characteristic shrug when asked about the importance of one more win. I need to win a match. Uh, of course, if that happens, will be something important for me. But season is not over and it's not the, the moment to think much about that. No, just try to think about to have the right preparation for the, for the tournament and then try to be ready for the first match. And lastly, the great anticipated Euro-Africa Group 1 Davis Cup relegation tie between host Israel and Romania was completed this past weekend with Israel winning the tie 5 love. Israel were the last team in Euro-Africa Group 1 to maintain their Group 1 status for the 2018 competition and will play newly promoted Kia South Africa in round 1 from the 2nd to the 3rd of February 2018 in the newly announced two-day Davis Cup format. South Africa gained promotion to Group 1 in September this year when they upset Denmark. Four one. That's your sport news this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories in Africa, rise and shine at the hour. Kenya's Uhuru Kenyatta wins repeat presidential election. Liberia's ruling party contests presidential election results and concerns over young Eritrean refugees fleeing the country. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producers Pumuzo Ramagaza and Jane Rabutata, technical producer Mario Edwards and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at infochannelafrica.co.za or tweet us at RiseShineAfrica or send an SMS on 277-969-57930 or WhatsApp on 277-630-03327. Now taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa is Flavor with a song titled Noir Baby.
Oh, my baby. Okay. I could have been. I don't know. I shall walk. I wish I shall walk. I shall Chuku, chuku, baby, oh, yeah. baby, so. 